We are back in the Gospel of John starting this morning and be here for the foreseeable future. So we have made our way all the way through, even though we took a, I don't know, 14-week break, but we made our way all the way through to the 12th chapter of the book of John. So that's where you can turn. If you are using one of those pew Bibles, um, then it is on page 898. Got me one of those fancy large print Bibles. That's what 2018 had in store for me. I have Rockport shoes on, which is the same shoes my grandpa wore. And, uh, and not, not because I like them, but because I need them. And a large print Bible. Good grief. How did that happen? All right. John chapter 12. Well, we're going to look at the first 11 verses. But keep your Bibles out after we're done, because then we're going to look at a parallel passage. All right. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it. For the day of my burial and for the poor you have, you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you. You've gifted it to us. You've given, you've given it to us. You've inspired it. You've superintended over it throughout the century so that we can hold in our hands and say by faith, but yet with confidence that this is your word. We can say, thus saith the Lord as we hold this. And we're thankful for what has occurred here. And Lord, help us, write us into the story that we see in practical ways and in real ways our role in this story as we're called to come and to pour ourselves out onto you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you, you could be seated. But also as you keep your Bibles out, because I want you to turn with me to look at a parallel passage, the same event, it's uh, by a different gospel writer's point of view. So turn with me to the book of Mark in chapter 14. So both John, Matthew, and Mark, they all cover the story. Luke writes about an anointing, but it's a different anointing. It's a different story. It's a different occurrence. But both uh, Matthew, Mark, and John cover this. And I, I just want for, for just a, a little slightly different perspective, let's look at how, how Mark puts it. It's only a couple of verses, but in, uh, let's see, in Mark, get over myself. Mark writes, and he says this, starting in verse number three. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, he was reclining at table. A woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, was the, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii 
and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could do. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. So let's just walk through the context to help us to understand what's happening in this text. Um, chapter 11, for those of you that flash back a little bit, chapter 11 ends with um, the growing animosity and hatred towards Jesus. Chapter 11 ends with uh, the, the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they've kind of put out an APB. They've told them, hey, if you find Jesus, tell us where Jesus is at. And in fact, what they've done is they've actually, in effect, they've written kind of a, a warrant for Jesus' arrest. Hey, if you find Jesus, tell us because we're going to arrest him. In fact, uh, chapter number 12 opens up and it says this is six days before Passover. That's important because Jesus will be put to death during Passover. In fact, this is approximately six days before Jesus' death. So the events from John chapter 12 to chapter 19, when Jesus is put to death, will take place over the course of six days. So the, all of this preaching that we're going to do for the next couple of months is actually taking place over six days of time. And so six days until Jesus will be put to death. Jesus is back in the town of Bethany. Now, Bethany is the hometown of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. It's the same town where Lazarus has died and was buried. And Jesus goes to Bethany and Jesus tells him, I'm the resurrection and the life. And to prove that and to show that, Jesus raises Lazarus, a person that he loved very dearly, raises him from the dead. And now what we have happening here is Mary and Martha and Lazarus, they're throwing a party for Jesus. There's a dinner where Jesus is the distinguished guest. The party is taking place in Simon the leper's house. We don't know who Simon the leper is. Possibly he's a guy that Jesus healed of leprosy. But nevertheless, Simon the, is hosting this party. Mary and Martha are there. Jesus is the distinguished guest. It's a, it's a Jesus party. I mean, if you ever been to a Jesus party, what a great party that would be. I mean, if you haven't been to one, hold on for those of you that are believers. Like someday you're gonna lay down this body and you're gonna wake up and it's gonna be a Jesus Jesus party for all of eternity. But they're at this party with Jesus. It says that uh, uh, Lazarus, who Jesus raised from the dead, he's alive and well, and he's sitting there reclining at the table. And so it weren't tables like our Western understanding of tables or tables close to the ground. And they would just throw pillows out, right? All around the tables. And so they probably finish eating and they're kind of kicked back, leaned over. Jesus is, Lazarus is. Martha's doing what Martha does, right? Martha's serving and cooking and cleaning and taking care of everything that needs to be taken care of. And then Mary enters the room. Martha and Lazarus' sister. The same Mary that uh, was talked about in Matthew that sat at Jesus' feet when Jesus was teaching. And, and Martha's busy. And Martha's the one who looks at Mary and goes, Mary, you got, there's work to do. What are you doing staying here? And Jesus corrects Martha and says, hey, don't steal this. Mary has chosen that one good thing that is needed. Like, hey, it's good that you're serving, but listen, listen, Mary's choosing something that's better to sit at my feet and to learn. And Mary, again, special relationship she has with Jesus. She enters the room and she's carrying with her an alabaster box, a very expensive fragrant ointment. It says it's a pure nard, not to be confused with cheap imitation 
nard. It's real deal here, right? And she has a pound of it. It's actually like 11 and a half ounces. So, so imagine it's about the size of a can of pop, right? About that size is what she's holding. And it's, it's expensive. How expensive was it? Well, Judas says that it could have been sold, and both in John and Mark, that it could have been sold for 300 denarii. So 300, one denarii is about a day's, a day's worth of wage. So 300 denarii is 300 days worth of work or about a year's worth of work. So think about what you make your annual salary. And that's how much this, this ointment, this nard costs. Another way we can look at it maybe is by, I was just trying to do different figures to think about it, to try to put value on this. And I think that is important. But if we think about this, if minimum wage is $7.25 an hour, and if someone works eight-hour days, right, over a course of 300 days, that's 17400 Now, let me say this. Math is not my strong suit. I still have to help my four-year-old with her math on my fingers, my soon-to-be four-year-old with her fingers. So let me just say, but I think I'm about right there. That we could say the value of this alabaster box full of ointment is about $17,400 in today's time. Now listen, we don't know where Mary got this from. I mean, like where does she, where did Mary get this? Where did that come from? I mean, could it be that um, it could be a family heirloom that's been passed down through the years and maybe it's, you know, it's gone up in value. Maybe it's very valuable at this time. It's probably not that Mary, Martha, Lazarus, any of them are rich. And here's how we can kind of make that assumption. And it is an assumption, but again, what, what's Martha doing? In, in the home where Mary's sitting at her feet and both here in this story, what's, what's Martha busy doing? Serving. Wealthy folks don't serve. Wealthy folks have servants who serve. So the fact that we see Martha serving in two different stories probably tells us it's not just what she enjoys doing, but it's probably the truth that they're not a wealthy family. So we don't really know where this expensive nard came from. Maybe they took up a collection. We have no idea where it came from. But this much we know that Mary takes $17,400 worth of perfume, of ointment, and she breaks the jar open and she begins to pour it on Jesus. She pours it, as Matthew says, on Jesus' head, anointing his head as a sign of his kingship. And then she begins to pour it on Jesus' feet. Mary lets down her hair and she begins to wipe Jesus' feet with her hair. And this gets a reaction There's a reaction in the room, a reaction from the disciples, namely from Judas. And Judas reprimands Mary. And look at what he says. He says, why was this ointment in the book of Matthew, or in Mark, Mark records it as, why was this ointment wasted like that? Why why have you wasted this ointment? Or why have you wasted the money? Like we could have sold it and the proceeds could have gone to help the poor. And what Judas believes that there's a better use of this $17,400 worth of ointment than to pour it out on Jesus. Maybe we could have sold it, generated some income. We could have done a good thing and given that to the poor. And what we see Jesus do, I would say surprisingly even, it seems as if Jesus would, Jesus would side with Judas here, but Jesus doesn't. He corrects Judas and he tells her, leave her alone. Leave her alone. The poor you're going to have always with you, but there will be a time uh, to give to the poor, but you will not always have me. 
And John records this in the seventh verse there. He says, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. That's kind of ambiguous what Jesus means by that. I think Mark chapter, uh, uh, um, Mark's perspective helps us in this. But I think what Jesus is doing, he's tipping his hand to two things. The first thing is his impending death. In six short days, Jesus will be crucified. But the second thing Jesus is saying here is that what was commonplace is for a, is for a body to be, to be anointed, to be covered after death. So after Jesus' death, there will be a group of women on that bright early Sunday morning, resurrection morning. There will be a a group of women that will go to the tomb to do what? To anoint Jesus' body after his death. But were they successful in anointing Jesus' body after his death? Like, this is your part. This is where you play along? No. Because Jesus has up from the grave, he is a rose, right? Jesus is no longer there. Jesus has resurrected himself. And so what he's saying here is, this is like a preemptive move here, Mary. I am gonna die, but I'm not gonna be laying in the grave long enough for you jokers to anoint my body. And so what you're doing here is you're anointing my body before it is put to death. And then in Mark's account, Jesus adds this. uh, I mean, Mark adds this, what Jesus adds, and he tells them this, that wherever the gospel will be proclaimed. So to the very ends of the earth, this story will accompany that as a memorial to Mary and her loving act. And this, I believe this that Jesus says, it finds its fulfillment in two ways. The first way in that it's here in the Bible. I mean, here we are, right? thousands of years later, and we're still talking about what Mary did that day. So it's happening. It's a memorial to Jesus, both in in Matthew's account and in Mark's account. It talks about that Jesus says that this will accompany the preaching of the gospel. And so it's preserved in scripture and we have it here. And so that's a fulfillment of it. But I think there's a second fulfillment as we move into the application, as we begin to see ourselves in the story, that what Mary does here is the very goal of the gospel. That Mary is acting as a forerunner for the effect of the proclamation of the gospel. The effect of people believing in Jesus. And it is this, that the preaching of the gospel should bring about something along the very lines of the action of Mary here. And namely, that people should come to Jesus and pour themselves out in worship to Jesus. That Mary's action and this pouring out of this very costly, fragrant commodity, it serves as a metaphor for us of what our lives should be about. That those who in this room who believe in Jesus, we are to spend our lives in selfless and costly devotion to Jesus because of who Jesus is. That all that we are and all that we have are to be given, they're to be poured out to Jesus in effort to glorify him. But that's the theme of this chapter. What's the theme of the chapter of uh, John chapter 12? It's twofold. First fold is, is people are believing in Jesus. Look and what see in the latter part of John 11, we see that, that, that the Jews are coming to believe in Jesus. 
at the end of the path. They're coming to believe in Jesus and we'll find ourselves over in just a few weeks that we're gonna see that now Greeks also are seeking Jesus and believing in Jesus. And so people are coming and believing in Christ. They're believing in who he is, that he is the son of God. He's the, he's the one who's coming to save us from our sin. They're believing in Jesus. But the second theme in chapter 12 is the theme of glory. It is that Jesus prays that the Father would glorify himself. And the Father says, I've glorified you once. I will glorify you again, Jesus. It is coming. I will glorify you. And the work of the gospel is this. It's through a supernatural work. You and I, our eyes are open. It's what all the way back what Jesus said to Nicodemus that night in the garden. You must be born again. And what does it mean to be born again? It means that our eyes are open supernaturally by the work of the Spirit. And what do we see when our eyes are open? Here's what we see. Namely, we see the beauty and the majesty and the glory of Jesus. They're all around this earth. Unbelievers take Jesus' name in vain. They, they care nothing about the person of Jesus. They may talk about Jesus as a historical figure or Jesus as a good man or Jesus as some spiritual guru or Jesus as a good teacher, but they do not see him as the perfect son of God who's given himself up as a ransom for us. And you and I, when we come to believe in Jesus and our eyes are open, we see Jesus as beautiful and Jesus is wonderful and Jesus is majestic. And all we want to talk about and think about and read about and sing and worship is Jesus. We sing the song, Jesus, 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 the sweetest name I know, right? Who sings that song? Those that believe in the gospel. That you and I, sinners getting saved, like that's what happens in the gospel. Sinners get saved. No, 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 that's a byproduct of the gospel. The chief aim of the gospel. What is the father doing in the gospel? He is setting up and he is glorifying his son as the suffering servant. And what is Jesus doing in the gospel? He is purchasing a people for him himself, a people that he has ransomed from their sin. That he's revealed himself into for what purpose? For this purpose, so that you and I may worship Jesus. That's what he's doing. He's opening our eyes to see his beauty and his wonder and his majesty so that you and I would come and we would worship him. Peter says it like this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9. He says, but you are a chosen race. Who's he speaking to? He's speaking to Christians. People have put their faith and their trust in Christ. He's saying, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That by Jesus' blood, he has purchased you. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's purpose there. Why has he purchased you? Why has he ransomed you? Why has he saved you? Why has he brought you to, you to himself? Namely this, what Mary does. That you pour out everything, all that you are. That's the, that's, the, that's, the, that's the picture there. Something that's very costly, something that's very precious. You pour that out onto Jesus. And that is what worship is. If we could just think about this, worship is ascribing worth to Jesus. See, that's the issue happening here in this text. It's the issue of waste versus worth. The question Judas is asking is this question, is Jesus worth $17,400 worth of ointment? 
Is Jesus worth that? No, no, no. He's saying, I think there's something better use of $17,400 worth of ointment. And Mary's saying, no, no, no. Jesus is worth every bit of this. How is worth determined? How do you determine what something's worth? Well, it's simply this. It's whatever someone's willing to pay for it, right? Whatever someone's willing to pay, that is what it's worth. And what Judah says is why this waste? And so what is waste then? Well, waste would be giving something or selling something for less than what is necessary. So if $5 would purchase something, but you give eight, you've wasted $3. If two ounces would do, but you give 12, then you've wasted 10 ounces. If it should take you three days to finish a task, but you take a week, then you've wasted four days. And to flip it, waste is also selling something for a certain value for less. What if you purchase something for $5 and you make the deal and you do the transaction and then the, the buyer says to you, hey, I'd give 10, 20, 50. You go, oh, I wish I'd have known that. I could have sold it for so much more. They would have paid more. That we say beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And in the same way, worth is determined by what you are willing to pay to have it. And that is the contrast between Mary and Judas. Mary sees Jesus' infinite worth. And she is saying by her action, Jesus, you are worth this. You are worth this. 17400 you're worth $300 worth of wages. You're worth the labor. You're worth this. You're worth this family heirloom. You're worth this. Great gratitude in this. You are worth this. You are worthy of this sacrifice. You are worthy of this pouring out. And Judas is saying in his heart, no, 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 no. This is a waste. That the very word worship, that's what it means, worth Ship. That when we worship Jesus, we are ascribing worth and value to Jesus. We are saying to Jesus, Jesus, you are, Jesus, you are worthy of this. So when we gather together at 1030 on Sunday mornings, you're saying, Jesus, you're worthy of my gathering together. Jesus, you're worthy of me getting up and getting dressed and getting my children, getting my, all the things that I do to be here. You're worthy of this. And when we come together and we sing, like when we come together and sing and like, hey, make no mistake, Jesus loves to hear you sing. Like it looks like if he loved that, he would make us all sing like canaries, right? But he hasn't. Listen to me sing. But when we sing, what you're saying as you sing is you are saying, Jesus, you are worthy of these words. Jesus, you are worthy of this breath. Jesus, you are worthy of this melody. Jesus, you are worthy of this energy. Jesus, you are worthy of this. And when you serve, when you serve the kingdom, when you give sacrificially of your time to something that expands Jesus's kingdom, that benefits others, then what you're saying is you're saying, Jesus, you are worthy of my time. Jesus, you are worthy of the disruption of my comfort. Jesus, you are worthy of my energy. 
when you give financially out of the obedience to Jesus, to things that promote the kingdom of Christ, what you were saying is you're saying, Jesus, you are worthy of this offering. Jesus, you are worthy of this investment. Jesus, you are worthy of this gift. When you make sacrificial decisions in order to honor the Lord with your obedience, what you are saying is, Jesus, you are worthy of the sacrificial decision that I'm making. Some of you in this room, you are, you're single and loneliness is a real thing. And it would probably be far easier for you to scan the bar scene. It'd be easier for you to lower your standards and say, you know what? Dating an unbeliever shouldn't or couldn't be all bad. It's better than this loneliness, right? But then you make the decision to stay to embrace the loneliness, to give the loneliness to Jesus, to cultivate relationships in the church with other friends. What you're saying is, Jesus, you're worthy of my loneliness. You're saying your loneliness is worship to Jesus. It's a sweet smelling fragrance to Jesus. And married couples in the room, so we don't make marriage some kind of idolatry. Marriage couples, married couples in the room, when things get tough, when the relationship gets rocky, that sometimes it feels like it'd be easier to call David Becker and Associates or the heavy hitter or go to divorce court, right? It'd be easier to go to divorce court than to marriage counseling. It'd be easier to split up or you think it would to split up and to break up and to go and do our own thing and go our separate ways and figure out custody and do all of those. Like that feels like it'd be easier than sticking and staying in this marriage. But when you say, no, 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 I'm going to give up my pride. I'm going to give up my comfort. I'm going to work towards real reconciliation and real forgiveness and real genuine love. Like when you do that, that's worship to Jesus. It's a sweet smelling fragrance to him. Jesus is worship. When we make sacrificial decisions in order to honor him with our obedience, what we are saying is, Jesus, you are worth this. That worship is us spending our lives in selfless, costly devotion to Jesus. Selfless devotion is costly devotion. Like, I don't know where we, where, where we derive a gospel where Jesus gives our lives and we give nothing. Like, where does that come from? Or Jesus gives up his very life and sheds his blood to purchase you, but then you just show up sometimes on 1030 on Sundays. Like, where has that come from? Like, the truth is, as Jesus has given his all, you and I, as his followers and his worshipers, we give our all. There's a story in Second uh, Samuel of uh, King David. This is toward the end of King David's life. And King David has been proven to be not a perfect man, a, a sinner. In fact, and even in this story, that David has sinned against the Lord and the Lord's brought a plague and thousands of people have been killed. And in 2 Samuel 24, the word comes to the prophet and tells David to go to a certain threshing floor owned by a Jebusite. And there I want you to, to build and erect an, a, an, an altar to the Lord and offer a burnt offering there. So David, in obedience, he says, okay. And so he goes to this certain Jebusite in order to, to make arrangements to buy, the, to buy the land. And this, the Jebusite's not even a believer. But when he sees King David, I mean, this is king, right? And then he sees King David coming toward him. He goes out and he meets David. And David says, hey, the Lord's told me to buy your threshing floor. And with it, then I'm going to make an altar and I'm going to give a burnt offering unto the Lord. And this Jebusite says, no, 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 no. Like, you're the king. Right? You're not going to buy anything from me. I want to give it to you. Here, just take it, take it. 
And David says this in 2 Samuel 24. Um, yeah, 2 Samuel 24, verse 24. He says, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord, my God, that cost me nothing. I will not offer an offering unto the Lord that cost me nothing. And honestly, I think this is a principle of worship. Selfless devotion is costly devotion. Who knows what Mary had planned on doing with that alabaster box of pure nard. But I'd say a couple of years before that, if she was in her possession, she did not plan on pouring it out on the head and the feet of Jesus. And the truth is, real devotion is costly devotion. It costs you your sleep to get up early in the morning, read your Bible, and pray. Center yourself on Jesus, doesn't it? It's easier to sleep in, and it costs you your sleep. As you, some of you will get your financial statements back at the end of January, and you'll look at it, and you'll go, holy cow. Like I could have done a lot of other things with that money than giving it to the church. We think about your time and the time you spend serving and doing and giving and going and going to PCG and going to DNA and going here. You think, gosh, 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 I could have done so much other things with that. But listen, selfless devotion that Christ is calling us to. And we'll see it again in this text. I'll preach this sermon three times before we get to the end of John chapter 12. He's trying to drum it, to beat it into our heads. The costly devotion. I'm sorry, selfless devotion is costly. Selfless devotion costs you financially. It's an important part of the story. That selfless devotion costs you socially. I mean, that's what happens to Mary. That we can dismiss the part where Mary lets down her hair and begins to wipe Jesus' feet. First of all, that's the job of servants is to clean someone's feet. And evidently there weren't any servants in the house. Again, probably a, a picture of their financial status. The second is Mary comes in and Mary lets down her hair. Women in this culture, they didn't let down their hair. I mean, that was associated with women of loose morals. And Mary understood that socially. And Mary didn't care. Mary lets down her hair and she begins to, she begins to, to, to wipe Jesus' feet. Selfless devotion may bring about criticism Mary does this. What is she? she gets criticism. Criticism from the disciples and from others. We sing a song here that's called, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. And the song lyrics go like this. Isaac Watts wrote it. And he said, were the whole realm of nature mine. So he said, if I owned it all, that were a present far too small. I mean, look at that. If I owned it, everything. And I was to give it to you, Jesus, everything, the whole nature. If I owned it all and I gave it the whole realm of nature and I gave it to you as a present, it would be far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. That's what Jesus is after. What does Jesus want from us? everything, all of it, every bit of it. It all belongs to him. 
It's already his. He just wants you to recognize it and to steward it well and to come to him with gratitude and thanksgiving. That's what he wants, to worship him, to say, thank you, Christ, thank you. Ultimately, the issue is this. Worship proceeds from the heart. Like, it's not all about action here. It's ultimately what's happening is you see a revelation of the heart here. The real issue is this. Judas loved money. Judas was greedy. Greed was in his heart and Judas loved money, but Mary loved Jesus. And your heart cannot simultaneously love both things. That's only in the Bible about 20 times. Your heart is incapable of loving stuff and things and Jesus at the same time. Jesus himself will say, hey, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna serve one and hate the other, neglect the other. Like, that's what Jesus says about it. So our hearts are incapable of doing that. That Mary's heart is full of gratitude and wonder and thankfulness and full of love. And she pours out what she has on Jesus. Judas's heart was full of greed. Then when you think of selfless devotion to Christ, you must evaluate your own heart in this. You gotta ask yourself in this, is do I treasure Jesus more than my stuff? Do I treasure Jesus more than my financial goals? Do I treasure Jesus even what seems like it makes worldly sense? When you think of the social costs, you gotta ask yourself, do I treasure Jesus more than my pride? I mean, we're gonna talk about sharing the gospel on January the 20th and what inhibits most of us from sharing the gospel isn't that we're ignorant of knowing what to say. Many of you spent years hearing the gospel week in and week out. You understand and know the gospel. What stands in the way of you sharing the gospel is your pride, it's your reputation. And you've gotta ask yourself, do I, do, I, do I treasure my reputation more than I treasure the possible criticism? Which do I treasure? I mean, the truth is, as we think about this, if we read this story, I mean, the story seems almost out of character for Jesus, does it not? I mean, doesn't it seem like there's a lot of you in here that are humble people. And like, you don't, you're not even comfortable when we try to show honor to whom honors do. Like, if we recognize one of you from the stage, you would say, no, 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 don't, 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 don't do that. Like, I'm, I'm, fall in the same boat. Don't, 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 don't do that. Like, don't, don't, don't talk. Don't, don't do that. It's okay. Just let me be. Let me. And we would say, hey, that's, that's a good thing. And that's a humble thing. And it almost seems out of character for Jesus to say, hey, throw, you know, hey, I'm coming to a party. I mean, Jesus knows everything. When like he got there and it was like, surprise, it's a Jesus party. He already knew before he went there and Jesus honors that. He honors their love. He honors their worship by attending it and being there, reclining at the table. And then we even, like I said earlier, like whenever Judas comes in with this idea of, hey, you know what, we could, we could sell this and give proceeds to the poor. I mean, we know about Jesus's heart for the poor. We know that Jesus loves the poor. I mean, it seems like to us, hey, you know what, instead of spending all of that on Jesus, it may be a better thing. Like, honestly, if you didn't know the story and it was like one of those choose your own adventure stories where you filled in the blank as to what happened next. A lot of you probably say, and Judas said to Mary, you know, or Jesus said to Mary, Judas is right. You should have sold it. What have you done? You've wasted it. But that's not what Jesus does at all in the story. That what Jesus gives out is he gives out that a fitting rebuke. Because let us never forget 
that Jesus is the treasure that is found, that is hidden in a field. And when you find it, Jesus said, you go and you sell everything that you have so that you can possess it. That Jesus is the, the pearl of great price. And, and once you find that pearl, you sell everything that you have so that you can possess that one great pearl that Jesus is calling us to come and to pour ourselves out in worship to him. That Mary, with a heart overflowing from love and gratitude and thanksgiving, she grabs the most expensive thing she can grab in that moment and she breaks it open and she pours it out on Jesus. And Jesus receives this. He receives this as fitting. Let me say two, maybe three short things and then we'll take some time for communion. First is, you know, I think the Sunday morning gathering should feel a lot like this party. The Sunday morning gathering should feel like a Jesus party where we're singing and we're celebrating Jesus. I mean, there's a bunch of Lazaruses in here, is there not? There's a bunch of you that Jesus has resurrected from the dead. He did it for Lazarus spiritually, but when we talked about that, we said, it's, I mean, physically, but it's actually a picture for what Jesus does to us. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Yes, there's coming a day where physically he will resurrect our dead bodies, but more importantly, what Jesus is doing even right now is he's resurrecting our spiritual bodies, that we are Lazaruses and our hearts should be brimming over in love and gratitude and thanksgiving to Jesus. Again, our eyes have been opened to see the wonder and the beauty and the splendor of Jesus. We are the ones who sing Jesus, 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 sweetest name I know. So let me ask you in your very own heart in this moment today, is your heart brimming over with love and affection and wonder and gratitude towards Jesus? Or has your affections grown cold? Do you no longer think about your salvation and what Jesus, who Jesus is and what Jesus has done with a sense of wonder and gratitude and joy? But now it's filled with coldness and obligation and religious deadness, ah, run to Jesus. Go to Jesus. Take that to Jesus. You don't have to hide. You don't have to pretend. Take that to Jesus. And then think about what Jesus has done for you. When Mary thinks about my brother who was dead and now he's been resurrected to life and he's here. And Jesus, you are the most wonderful thing and the most wonderful person I can think of. That is true. Think about your own story and your own life and think about what Christ has done for you, how he's proved himself mighty and strong in your life time and time and time and time and time and time and time again. Like honestly, like those of us in the room who've been saved the longest, we should be the most joyous towards Jesus. Like I understand that a lot of us, we look with some sort of jealousy at new believers, at their zeal. And sometimes we wanna say like, oh, just wait, you'll get over it, you know? Like, like the honeymoon phase in a marriage and folks maybe have given you that advice. Oh, you know, all those, that, that Twitter-pated feeling that you feel, oh, don't worry, you'll get over it. What terrible advice. Like our jobs is to never get over it. And in the same way, our jobs, when we come to know Jesus, it should be to never get over it. 
I mean, we've got more track record with the faithfulness of God than they do. So we should be quicker to sing and to celebrate. We've got more knowledge about Jesus, about who he is and what he's done and how he works. And so those of us who have been saved a longer time, we should be more joyous and more filled with just delight at who Jesus is. Don't let all that other junk cloud what it's about. It's about worshiping Jesus. It's about making much of Jesus. Why do we study the scriptures? Why do we turn to them? Why do we open them up? Why do we preach to make much of Jesus? It's about Jesus. Why are we called the Point Community Church? One reason. So when people say, what's the point? We can say, Jesus is the point. Why do we exist? Why are we here? To make much about Jesus. And we do that through preaching and you do it in your hearts. We do it in our hearts together with real true affection and real true worship and real true delight and real true gratitude. We say, Jesus, you did what we could not do. You did what nobody else could do. You saved me and forgave me and set my feet on a solid ground. You gave me a hope and a future. You delight in me and I delight in you. That is what Christianity is about. Don't miss it. It's about delighting in Christ and knowing him and loving him and walking in him every single day. Good, right? I'm 44 years old and I've never heard any better news than what I get to preach and proclaim to you. And you jokers pay me to do this. I get a paycheck at the end of the week for doing this, preaching the good news to you, telling you about Jesus, his love for you. Oh, Andy, but I don't live perfectly. Well, that's, that's okay. Like, I, I don't want to dismiss sin, but no one of us lived perfectly. And listen, God's love and affection for you isn't based upon your performance. It's based upon a real and true transaction that happened on a cross 2,000 years ago. That's the basis of God's love for you. And how is God's love being manifest to you? What's well, not necessarily in prosperity, right? A lot of us in here can say amen to that, right? A lot of us, you know, my car's in the garage. I got two, I got own three cars and two of them are in the garage right now today. Not just prosperity. How is God? How do we know that God is for us? We just sang a wonderful song about it. God is for us. God does love us. He does have a hope for you. He does have a future for you. He does have a plan for your life. And what's that plan? It's to lavish his grace and his goodness upon you. Oh, that you would see that and believe that and know that and walk in that. And what happens when we see that? We worship him in that. So one, Sunday morning should feel like a Jesus party. And the second thing is when this happens, gosh, it fills up the room with a sweet smelling fragrance. When Mary busted open that alabaster box, again, it's pure nard. It's not that imitation stuff some of you all wear that you buy at the flea market, right? This is a real deal here. And man, it smelled good filled up that room. And listen, our worship, our singing, we sing with robust, right? And vigor. And we sing. And even when it's off key, man, it's, it fills up this room. Right? This is one of the, like, when we first got to come in here and worship, we were just talking about this room, how it sounds like, man, let's fill up this ginormous room with worship and adoration and singing and praise to Jesus. Let us give, let us do all of that. It's a sweet smelling fragrance here in this room. 
think I retweeted a, a thing I saw uh, another pastor said like, man, you never know the, the song that you sing. Maybe the, maybe the very song that the person next to you needs to hear. It may, it may prop up the, the way that you sing it and the truth that you're singing. It may prop up the saint, the weary saint right next to you. It fills up this room and second, it rises up to Christ. In fact, in Revelation, there's a picture of the incense. There's these, those of you that um, maybe grew up in the Catholic church, maybe you've seen that before, but there's the, the priest comes in with the incense. He's doing the, on the chain and doing all that. And there's a picture. I mean, that, they didn't just pull that and it's, they didn't pull that one out of the air. That's real in the tabernacle and in heaven, it will look like that with the priest. And what John says, it's revealed to him. That's the prayers of the saints. That when you and I, when we pray together, we sing together, when we worship together, it rises up like incense in the heavenlies. What a beautiful picture. Let's pray. Jesus. There may be people here that may be asking the question, does God really care? Does God love me? How do I know that God is for me? Pastor, you don't know all that I've done and all that I've experienced. And you would say, you would have the audacity to say that God loves me. And I am not saying that by myself, but we are proclaiming that as we offer sinners who've been made saints by your blood as we offer them your blood and your broken body for us to come and partake of that points to our faith in you. That this is a picture of your great love for us. We take it every week so that we never have to question, does God love me? Right here. Is God for me? It's right here. Do I have a hope? It's right here. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Jesus, in this, may we make much of you. As we take bread, as we drink this juice, and as we remember, may we do it with real affections, real sense of gratitude, real prayers, and may all of that rise to you in worship of you, Jesus. In your name we pray.